So we are looking at John 20, 30 and 31 this morning. But remember that Jesus said in the previous verse, John chapter 20 and verse 29 to Thomas, Have you believed implicitly now because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As we studied last week, Jesus is not undermining the convincing nature of his encounter with Thomas. He's not chiding Thomas for believing now that he has seen Jesus resurrected in the flesh. The only reasonable thing to do would in fact be to believe if the resurrected Jesus stood before you in the flesh and you could see the nail marks and you could put your finger in them and you could put your hand in his side, the only reasonable thing to do in that situation would be to believe. So Jesus isn't chiding Thomas for believing now that he has seen Jesus risen from the dead. But what Jesus is insinuating in this statement is that Thomas should have believed beforehand. Before Thomas saw Jesus in the flesh with the nail marks and the hole in his side, Thomas should have believed. The uniform testimony of the other disciples was that they had seen the Lord. As I said to you last week, if there was a car accident on the highway and you found yourself unable to pass, let's say it was a section where there was the middle divider, And so there was no way to even turn your car around and go back. And so you find yourself in a traffic jam and you're there for an hour or two waiting until this big mess is cleaned up. And you find 10 eyewitnesses who agree about what happened. It is not rational to disbelieve the uniform testimony of 10 eyewitnesses. These 10 had told Thomas that they had seen the Lord. Combine that with the fact that Thomas had seen Jesus' miracles firsthand. Thomas had heard from Jesus' mouth the claims that he had made about himself throughout the course of his ministry. Things like, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Combine that with the fact that Thomas was at least an Old Testament kind of believer, if I can put it that way. He had faith in Israel's God. And that one day, Yahweh would send a Messiah. And that somehow, Yahweh was going to fix the problems in this world. That one day there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That one day in Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Combine all of these things together. And the most reasonable thing for Thomas to have done prior to seeing Jesus resurrected in the flesh was to believe. In other words, Thomas wasn't being too logical. Thomas was not being logical enough. The most plausible explanation for such an about-face of these disciples who had all agreed a week before that Jesus was dead and that they were cowering in fear, but now were claiming that Jesus was alive. 
The most plausible explanation for that about face was that Jesus was, in fact, alive. People don't change that much psychologically in a week. Especially when one factors in that Jesus had raised someone else from the dead already. Namely, Lazarus. And Jesus had fed multitudes miraculously and healed people with a touch or a word. It was not implausible to believe that Jesus himself had risen from the dead. He had said, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. But Thomas, inconsistently and irrationally, narrowed his criteria for plausibility to first-hand empirical evidence, and thereby came to an irrational conclusion that Jesus had not risen from the dead. Remember what I told you last week. There are many who, like Thomas, say something like this. I would believe in Jesus if he would appear to me. Or if I personally witnessed one of the miracles that Jesus did, I would believe. Or I've never seen a resurrection, so I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What they are doing is they're narrowing their criteria for what is plausible to first-hand empirical evidence. The underlying premise of such statements is that only first-hand empirical evidence will suffice for these people to believe. But have each of these people traveled first-hand around the entire circumference of the earth and realized that they didn't fall off the edge but actually came all the way back around to where they started? And therefore, and on that basis alone, they believe that the earth is round and not flat. You see, there are many things which it is possible to gather first-hand empirical evidence about, and yet which we are content to rest on credible second-hand information about. The earth is not flat. I haven't traveled around the entire circumference in a straight line and circled back around to where I started, but I believe that the earth is not flat. I hope that you do too. (laughs) Resting on credible second-hand evidence. Listen, resting on credible second-hand evidence is not irrational. But is actually rather rational. To do the opposite is what is irrational. It is irrational to disbelieve everything but that which you have first-hand empirical evidence about. And so if someone consistently decided to disbelieve everything but that which they had first-hand empirical evidence about, they would have a woefully inadequate view of the way things are, and they would irrationally disbelieve many things. It is in keeping with this concept, or it is this concept which prompts Jesus to chide Thomas for irrationally disbelieving credible second-hand information. His statement isn't to the effect that you shouldn't believe now that you've seen me, obviously, because he should believe now that he's seen him. His statement is, 
Only now you believe? But you should have believed without seeing. Because there was credible second-hand evidence here. Jesus promotes the sort of rational worldview in which not only first-hand empirical evidence is factored into our conclusions, but also credible second-hand information. Jesus knows that after His ascension, everyone who is going to believe in Him will have to do so without seeing Him firsthand in His resurrected glory. Everyone who is going to believe will have to do so without seeing. Jesus implies in verse 29 of John chapter 20 that such believing without seeing is indeed possible and that those who do so are not in a pitiable or disadvantaged state, but are in fact blessed along with all of those who believe on the basis of seeing. Such faith, believing without seeing, will be of equal standing with the apostles. As Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, writing to those who believed on second-hand evidence that they have obtained a faith of equal standing with his own. Such faith, believing without seeing, will likewise lead not to perishing, but to eternal life. Now this is the context of John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. That's what has immediately preceded John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many people can't understand why John seems to conclude the book at the end of chapter 20 in verses 30 and 31 and then include John 21 afterward and then conclude again at John chapter 21 and verse 35. Some more liberal scholars have even posited that the original epistle, or not epistle, the original gospel ended at the end of chapter 20, and that chapter 21 is a later edition. But based on what Jesus has just said to Thomas in verse 29, John is not concluding his account in verses 30 and 31. Rather, he's applying to his readers what Jesus just said. John is basically interjecting and saying to his readers essentially something like this. Look, Jesus has just said that we should be able to believe without seeing. Implicitly on the basis of credible second-hand evidence. And here is credible second-hand information on which to rest your faith. I've written for that very reason to give you a credible basis for believing and having life in Jesus' name. Have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John's like, okay, hear what Jesus just said? Look, I have written these things so that you may believe without seeing. I have written these very things so that you, readers who haven't seen Jesus in the flesh and haven't had the opportunity to put your fingers in the nail marks in His hands or put your hand in His side so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
So this morning we are going to briefly review these things that John has written, namely his gospel, and then establish John's credibility, or at least at least examine John's credibility at, in brief. And then I'm just going to urge you to believe on the basis of what John has said. So our message is pretty simple this morning. Let's begin then with a brief review of John's gospel. And of necessity, this is going to have to be a pretty high level flyover of John's gospel. Because we've been in this book since 2018. There's been little breaks here and there, but I preached something like, I, I did a rough count this week, something like around 75, 80 sermons already on John's gospel. So we, we obviously can't review everything exhaustively this morning. But let's look at the contours and the main emphases of the book. So this is going to be more like if you bought several hundred acres of land somewhere in North America. This is like going up in a helicopter to view it rather than like walking the footpaths and dipping your toes in the river and so forth. This is a pretty high level flyover, but you're going to get a sense of the lay of the land. John 1 lays out immediately the identity of Jesus. As the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is going to be a theme that's revisited over and over again in John's Gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 13, Jesus says that He is the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. Ah, some say, the Son of Man. So Jesus is no God. Jesus is the Son of Man. But contrary to that line of reasoning, this title, Son of Man, does not negate Christ's claim to divinity. Rather, it establishes His identity as the Messiah prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw one like a Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and so on and so forth. So, if we put it together... The assertion in John 3 is that the Messiah turns out to be the Word Himself, who was in the beginning with God and was God. You see, the Son of Man doesn't, that title doesn't deny that He is a man. In fact, it concedes that yes, He is a man. But it doesn't negate the fact, testified elsewhere, that He is more than a man. All that title does is establish that He is the Messiah. And He is the Messiah descended from heaven, according to chapter 3 and verse 13. Again, in chapter 6, Jesus says that He is the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Follow the logic of those who object to Jesus' divinity on the basis of His title, the Son of Man, in John chapter 3. In John chapter 6, ah, you see, he is neither man nor God, but bread. You see, if we were to apply this consistently, it it really doesn't hold up. Arguing like that isn't a good way of arguing. Jesus is called the Son of Man to highlight something about the nature of his identity and his ministry. And he's called the bread of God. To highlight something of the nature of his identity and his ministry. 
Calling Him the Son of Man doesn't mean that He's not God. Any more than calling Him the bread of God negates that He is either man or God. So He is the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God. But He became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the Son of Man. Where did, he, where did the Messiah come from? He descended from heaven. He's the bread of God descended from heaven. You see here? So this theme is that Jesus comes from above. As the book progresses, Jesus begins to emphasize that the place where He came from is the place to which He is returning. John chapter 7, verse 33. John chapter 8 and verse 14. John chapter 13 and verse 3. I'm not going to turn you to all of these, but I mention them for the note takers. You see it over and over again. I came from here and I'm returning to there in John's gospel. See, the portrait that John paints of Jesus is that Jesus is God. Come to us in the flesh. Jesus Himself makes a claim in John 8, 58 that wasn't lost on His original hearers. Before Abraham was, I am. He is speaking there of His nature as the I am who appeared to Moses in the bush. Now notice that Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I was which would merely be a claim to be old, exceedingly old. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Which is a claim to not, it's a claim as to the mode of his existence. And I'm going to get a little philosophical with you here for a moment. Only God does not exist in a succession of moments. Everyone else and everything else does. Let's just say, for example, that you were conceived on a Tuesday at 8.35 p.m. That was your first moment. And then you exist ever since then in a succession of moments. But God exists in an entirely different mode as the timeless one. So we don't go, when did God start? In six quadrillion seven hundred and thirty two billion whatever BC. You see? He does not exist in a succession of moments, but he exists as the timeless one, transcending time. Before time was, God could say, I am. So when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying something that wasn't lost on his hearers. So the next verse reads, so they picked up stones to stone him. It wasn't because he was brashly arguing that he was super old. It was because he was making an implication. He was drawing an implication for them that he is from heaven. And not just from heaven as an angel who appears to man might be from heaven, but he is from heaven as the I am. As the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. In case we're still in doubt though, Jesus tells us explicitly in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. 
And in John chapter 14 and verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John has been clearly making a case in his account of the life and teachings of Jesus that Jesus is, in fact, not merely one who was with God prior to his life on earth, prior to his dissension from heaven to earth, the way angels may be said to be with God in heaven. But John has been making the case that Jesus is not merely one who was with God, but who was God. That's Jesus' backstory. That's where he came from. So he is on earth as the one who came from heaven, not just as an angel might when appearing to men, but as one who is himself divine. Now this, of course, raises a question about God's nature and the nature of the Incarnation. What happened when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us? Is God now on earth instead of in heaven? Is there more than one God since Jesus claims to be God but also says His Father is in heaven? You see, these are, these are questions that are naturally raised by the very statement that the Word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. John answers questions like these too, and this is another major theme of John's Gospel. He teaches us about the nature of God as Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, in chapter 1, John introduces us to this main theme. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1 that Jesus is the only Son from the Father. And he says that immediately on the heels of saying that others will become children of God. So Jesus is not the only Son in the sense that there are no others. But Jesus is the only Son in the sense that He is a unique Son in the way that others will never be. No other children of God were in the beginning with God and were God. You see, I'm a child of God. I am a son of God. Any male believer in this room is likewise a son of God. You women who are trusting in Christ are daughters of God. We are children of God. But none of us can say, I was in the beginning with God and was God. Nobody can say before Abraham was, I am. You see? And so Jesus is presented as the only son in the sense that He is a unique Son, in a way that none of us are, nor ever could be. No other children, or no, pardon me, Jesus is unique in His relationship to the Father, as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, in that He is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the one whose works are, at one and the same time, the very works of the Father which is the sense of the discourse at the end of chapter 5. Whatever the Father does, that the Son is also doing. Thus, Jesus is to be honored just as they honor the Father. I'm not to be honored just as they honor the Father, nor are you. Jesus is the only Son to be honored like that. You see? This is the sense of it. 
And furthermore, in John's Gospel, it's not just the Father and the Son who are identical in nature, but also the Spirit. John teaches us of the Spirit's impending coming in chapter 1 and verse 33, when he says that Jesus will baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. John tells us in chapter 7 and verse 39, that at the time Jesus spoke the words that He did immediately prior, John says, quote, As yet, the Spirit had not yet been given. Jesus develops this theme further. And Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 18, that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the context of that statement is found in the preceding verses. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give to you another Helper. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. And then immediately. Right there. Jesus says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the means by which Jesus will come to His disciples, the means by which Jesus will not leave them as orphans, is by His Spirit. Therefore, the identity of the Spirit is coterminous with Jesus Himself, who says that in the Spirit's coming, He Himself will be coming to them. Jesus says, I will come to you, meaning the Spirit will come to you. You see, in John's Gospel, Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is one with the Spirit. And so the Spirit is one with Jesus. The Father is one with Jesus. Therefore, the Father and the Spirit are one with one another. And so John teaches us of a God, one God. Who is eternally, I am, outside of time, not existing in an endless succession of moments, but transcending time. A God who exists eternally, I am, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit are with one another in one sense. And are one another in another sense. Just as the Word was with God and was God. This is the unavoidable implication of all John's teaching about the Father, Son, and Spirit. These are huge themes in John's Gospel as we've seen over the last couple of years. And John doesn't just leave this in the ethereal and abstract realm, like way out there. What difference does all this make to our lives? John tells us that the Father has a plan. John tells us that the Father sent His Son into the world. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus affirms in John chapter 10 and verse 18, that He hasn't been coerced into this mission. But He states, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
There is a problem, however, which is that as John chapter 3 and verse 19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our corrupt nature makes it such that even though the Father has a plan, and even though the Son came into the world to lay down His life for His sheep, for His friends, we would never believe unless God intervenes. Jesus teaches in John chapter 3 that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we thank God that there is not only a Father who plans, and there is not only a Son who willingly dies, but there is a Spirit who gives the new birth. Thank God that not only the Father and the Son are active in planning and sending and coming, but that the Spirit is active in being the Father's agent of drawing men and women, boys and girls to faith in Christ, who otherwise would never come. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the means by which the Father draws is by the blessed Spirit. Just as the means by which Jesus doesn't leave the disciples as orphans, but comes to them is by that same Spirit. The Father plans and sends. The Son comes and the Spirit regenerates and draws. Thus the glory is all God's whenever a man is saved. Why are you a Christian? This should be your answer after you read John's Gospel. Because God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus willingly came. He said, no one laid down, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I was drawn. I was given the new birth. When? At what point was I given the new birth? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right then, before you started moving to God, God moved toward you right then. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with God in Christ Jesus. Why am I a Christian? Because the Father planned and sent. Because the Son willingly came. And because the Spirit drew. The glory is God's. And the responsibility is all man's when a man refuses to come to faith in Christ. Right after John chapter 3.16 is John chapter 3. 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And so we circle back around now to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now putting an emphasis on this last major theme that I'm going to lay out for you from John's gospel, which is this. There are two groups of people in John's gospel. The truly believing and the unbelieving. Really, ultimately, only two groups of people in John's gospel. You read about the crowds. You read about the disciples. You read about the Jews. You read about the Sanhedrin. You read about the Romans. You read about... But ultimately, John draws this out for us over and over again. There's really only two groups. The truly believing and the unbelieving. See, John divides the unbelieving into several subcategories, if you will. Most notably, he uses the word belief sometimes, even of those who want to kill Jesus, or even those who abandon Jesus later. And what John is doing there is he's highlighting for us that there is a kind of belief that doesn't actually mean you love Jesus. It doesn't actually mean you've been born again. It doesn't actually mean you've experienced a heart change. And what John wants us to do is look at ourselves and go, in what way do I believe in Jesus? Am I a superficial believer who's going to leave? Do I profess to believe, but really deep down I resent the claims of Jesus over my life, so on and so forth? So there's sort of like the superficially believing, unbelieving if I could put it that way. And then there's the openly unbelieving. But really in John's gospel, there's only two categories. The believing and the unbelieving. John paints a portrait of Jesus teaching and doing miracles. And some truly believe, while others disbelieve altogether or superficially believe. Which, as I said a moment ago, is still really just unbelief. At the end of the day. John tells us in John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. That he has written so that we will not be unbelievers. And it's clear from examining his gospel that he doesn't want us simply to be superficial believers either. John wants us to go all in on Jesus. He wants us to believe in Jesus' divinity. He wants us to believe... In our triune God's plan of salvation. Which culminates in the person and the work of the Son. John doesn't want you to walk out of church today. Thinking merely that Jesus is a nice man. What a nice man he was who walked around Galilee all those years ago. Look at the compassion he had on the crowds when they were hungry. What a nice man. John does not want you to walk out of here merely thinking that Jesus is an inspirational teacher of some sort. You know, I believe that following the ethics of Jesus is a beautiful thing. You know, and I just try to follow in His footsteps. That's what Christianity is for me. John's not okay with just just stopping there. Jesus was a nice man, for the record. And, and Jesus really is an inspirational teacher. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, surely you can concur. But John, just, John doesn't want you to just stop there. John wants you to believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. These are the major themes of John's Gospel. Who Jesus is, who our triune God is, the triune God's plan of salvation, and what are you going to do about it? You're going to be a believer or you're going to be an unbeliever? You're going to be a true believer or a superficial believer, which is still really just unbelief at the end of the day. This is, this, this is the contours, this is the helicopter flyover of John's gospel. So should we trust John and believe his testimony about Jesus? After all, he says, look, Jesus just said in John chapter 20 and verse 29 that you should believe without seeing on the basis of credible second-hand evidence. As it so happens, I've written this as credible second-hand evidence so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So should we believe John? Let's briefly examine John's credibility. And I'll raise only three brief points here. First, what John says is internally consistent. John's system of doctrine is not self-defeating nor incoherent. John's gospel does not bear the marks of an insane man's rambling. If John chapter 1 and verse 1 is true, that Jesus was in the beginning with God and was God, then absolutely nothing that follows is implausible in John's gospel. In fact, it makes so much sense. John's gospel has explanatory power for the sociological phenomenon of Christianity's rapid spread in the first century in spite of persecution. If I came to you today, I said, listen, I got this secret message to give you. If you believe it and you go public about it, there's a real good chance you're going to get your head chopped off. You see, you're not intrinsically motivated, right? But Christianity spread like wildfire in the first century. Something has to account at least for that sociological phenomenon. The reality is, for whatever reason it happened, it did happen. Jesus died and his disciples ran away. And then all of a sudden, within weeks, there's thousands of people who believe Jesus came back from the dead. And within years, it spread throughout the empire. To the point where we're here on this tiny little island, thousands and thousands of miles away from Israel, believing that a guy who was born in a little, smaller little town is God. Okay, that's at least a sociological phenomenon that deserves an explanation. A rational explanation. Alright? And John's gospel has explanatory power for that. And John's gospel has explanatory power for the way that the world, that world history has unfolded since the first century. John's gospel tells us accurately about the nature of mankind. That we tend towards loving the darkness rather than the light. Suppressing the truth unless God intervenes. Haven't we seen that throughout human history? If you haven't, 
I think you probably never studied human history. Because you look at all of the ideologies and belief systems that have risen and fallen, some of which were just, frankly, stupid, and some of which were were very evil. Can you not see that we tend towards darkness rather than light? And yet, throughout the ages, countless Christians have been willing to live and even die for their belief in Christ Jesus. John's Gospel gives us a plausible explanation for both of these phenomena. We tend toward darkness rather than light. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we really are the kind of people that the Bible says we are. And that John tells us we are. Unless we're born again, we can't even see the kingdom of God. That's a rocket science to us. And we just prefer the darkness. And our deeds are evil. But there is God who gives people new hearts and new eyes to see. And when people get new hearts and new eyes to see, they see and they enter the kingdom of God and they're looking for a better country, as Hebrews puts it. And so they're willing to hide out in caves and to be driven out of the cities and to be sawn in two and to be torn by wild beasts like Hebrews 11 puts it. They're willing to be thrown to the animals in the Colosseum and stand there peacefully without desperately trying to save their own lives. They love their lives. Not unto death. Well, if John's gospel is true, it makes a very plausible explanation for why we see both of those phenomena running parallel, not just through the first century, but through all the centuries since and right up to the present day. Why there are people who... Why the mass of humanity seems to prefer the darkness rather than the light. Why there's so much evil in the world. And yet, why there are still those who are willing to live and die for the belief that Christ has risen and that there is a better country and a better kingdom. John's Gospel gives us a plausible explanation for all this. Second, John himself seems to have believed his own story. It's well known that Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have iPhones and iPads. This is good for you. Take this. Oh, your children must love it. Well, actually, we limit their technological consumption. Right? It raises into the question the this is good for you narrative. You see? But John seems to have believed his own story. John seems to have really believed this is good for you. History tells us that John was banished to the prison island of Patmos for his faith in Christ. The rest of the apostles were martyred. Why would these men die for a faith they knew to be false? Why would John die, spend his last days exiled on a prison island, writing letters to the churches, if he knew his faith to be false? Whatever else you may say about John and the Apostles, deluded perhaps, 
deceived perhaps, but they were not insincere. They died for what they believed. That at least is the mark of sincerity, right? So we have a plausible explanation of the way, Christ, the, the way Christianity spread in the first century and the way history has run down to this present time. And we can see that John and the apostles were at least sincere, that they at least believed their own story and were willing to die for it. Third, at the time of John's writing and the apostles' preaching, nearly everything about what is written in the Gospels, including the resurrection, could be publicly verified or disproved. In other words, there was first-hand empirical evidence available. You say, well, how inconvenient that there's no first-hand empirical evidence available today. Well, do you believe what you read in the history books about ancient Rome? Many, many of the things that we believe, that we read about, that we study about, the people, there's no first-hand empirical evidence extant today about these things either, you realize. But for all true things, at some point, there really was good grounds to believe in anything that happened in history. Right? If I told you about a guy that appeared, no one saw him. But he came to earth and did a bunch of things no one ever witnessed them. And then he left. No one ever saw him leave. Well, that has all the makings of a tall tale, doesn't it? But the Bible tells us, John tells us, that nearly everything that is written about, including the resurrection, could have been publicly verified or disproved. There was first-hand empirical evidence. Of course, the private conversations recorded for us in the Gospels were witnessed by only a few people, privately, by their very nature. We're not told whether any of the disciples witnessed the conversation with Nicodemus, for example. So it's possible that maybe there were no witnesses besides Jesus and Nicodemus to the conversation recorded for us between Jesus and Nicodemus. So I'm not necessarily saying every, absolutely everything. But most was public record. Feeding 5,000 is not something you can secretly do. You understand? It means there are at least 5,000 witnesses. Look, we don't, know, we don't know where this bread and fish came from, but we know that that guy gave them to us. Right? Well, where did he get it from? Right? There was no food here two hours ago. Right? You understand? Those are public things. And even the resurrection itself was testified to by multiple witnesses who died for the claim that they had seen the risen Jesus. Paul makes the claim in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. At one time is especially key because if the rumors started to spread there would be more grounds for the psychological phenomenon argument, which you may have heard, which is that all these people just wanted to see Jesus so bad that they believed they saw him. And especially if the rumor started, you could have an emperor's new clothes situation where all of a sudden you've got three or 400 people saying that they've seen Jesus. It's like, have you seen him too? 
Oh, yeah, I saw him last night. Right? Because you don't want to be the guy that said you haven't seen Jesus. Right? But look, 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. You could go to Jerusalem and talk to these people, and they're like, yeah, it happened. We saw. And these people suffered and died for their, for their witness. The resurrection was a public event. If Jesus had not done miracles nor risen from the dead, these claims would not have had the same sweeping effect that they did upon the contemporaries of Jesus and the disciples who met him and them. And it would not have produced the same psychological effect on the men and women who eventually died for their claims. What I mean by that is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no compelling explanation for why the guys that were hiding behind locked doors at point A were a matter of seven weeks later publicly testifying that Jesus was alive and suffering for that claim. People don't change that much in seven weeks. Now, obviously, those are the three things that we'll explore this morning for the sake of time. This is not all that could be said, obviously, by way of rationalizing and proving the Christian faith. But we don't have time to thoroughly and exhaustively do that this morning. In fact, it wouldn't be possible even over a few months or years of sermons to do so. There is ample material to be considered in favor of rational belief in Christ Jesus. And some have dedicated their whole careers simply to that one task. The discipline is called apologetics. People have dedicated their whole lives to exploring that field of study. So it's well beyond our scope today. But I mention it just to give you an idea of how broad and deep that field of exploration is. If you're unconvinced by the three things I mentioned this morning, you're like, that's it? No, that's not even close to it. I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg. But this morning we have seen at least, okay, at least that John's gospel is a sincere and coherent telling of what John truly believed happened. And that John and his contemporaries suffered and died for what they purported to be true in their gospel accounts and preaching. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who lived, died, and rose. And that these events were attested to by multiple witnesses. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. If this is true, it changes everything. And we have credible second-hand information that it is indeed true. So believe. Like Nicodemus in chapter 3, you might be curious about Jesus right now. Like the woman by the well in chapter 4, you might be skeptical of Jesus right now. Like the crowds, you might be wondering within yourself right now, can this be the Christ? Like the Sanhedrin, you might resent Jesus in your heart and His claims upon your life. But hear Jesus Himself. I am the bread of life. John chapter 6 and verse 35. I am the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 12. I am the door. John chapter 10 and verse 9. I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10 verse 11 and 14. 
I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the vine. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 5. If Jesus really said these things, and it's not to be seriously doubted in the face of John's sincere testimony that he did at least say these things, even if he didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus really did say these things, which he did, there's no rational grounds to say he didn't at least say these things, then C.S. Lewis's well-known saying applies here. Many of you would have heard this already. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I would urge you this morning to do just what C.S. Lewis said to do at the end there. Fall at Jesus' feet with Thomas on the basis of credible second-hand information and cry out, My Lord and my God. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, there may you, though vile as he, wash all our sins away. Believe in Jesus this morning.